Before this show gets going, we want to tell you about one of our favorite podcasts that we think you should listen to. It's called Smart Mouth. That's two words, smart and mouth, is, is a food history podcast hosted by Catherine Spires. Who's a very great host. Who is a former food editor at KCET and LA Weekly, no affiliation. No affiliation. By their choice. We beg them for affiliation. Yeah. They said, no thanks. <laughs> Please, affiliate me. <laughs> Every episode of this podcast is a deep dive into something specific and food related like peaches or mayonnaise or Betty Crocker and home economics, uh, which I, a little mayonnaise on my home economics. Mm. It's perfect. Just a little bit. Helps it go down. Or how so much of what we eat is dictated by the military. It sounds crazy, but once you start looking at processed food, you discover a lot of strange happenings. A lot of the guests are celebrities and comedians, so the conversations are always fun. So you should subscribe to Smart Mouth on your favorite podcast player, because I think it's if, as an L.A. history lover, you will love learning food history from an L.A. person. <laughs> A person who has deep ties to L.A. writing institutions, KCT and L.A. Weekly. That's Catherine Spire's Smart Mouth Podcast. Listen to it. Might be 107. It might be 107. It might be 109. It's not 109 because that's when I have to sing the Elvis song. And I made a reminder on my phone. Oh, my God. Siri, was... Siri, tell me to <laughs> sing an Elvis song. Siri, remind me on December 20th. To sing to Blue sing... Moon of Kentucky. Oh, no, she got it wrong. What are you, Alexa? <laughs> I'm sorry. Elvis is not in our music catalog. <laughs> Elvis has left the phone. <laughs> So, yeah, this is episode 107 or something, 108 something. maybe. We yeah. don't know. It's the podcast where numbers don't matter. <laughs> the podcast where everything's made up and the numbers don't matter. We have never told a fact on this show. We've come dangerously close to being factually correct. Uh, it was very <laughs> scary. We got a call from corporate. So this is uh, Daniel Zafrin. This is Greg Gonzalez, and welcome to the Allie Meekly podcast, the podcast that'll have you saying, go to bed. <laughs> you're tired. Go to bed. Go to bed. It's 11 a.m. on a Tuesday that you're listening to this. Go to bed. Your boss won't care. Trust me. We talk to him or her. Him or her. Or, or they, they. Or they. Look, a boss is just a boss in my eyes. They're, a boss in my eyes, a boss is just someone I don't like. It's somebody that Mario has to beat up. Um, <laughs> there's a fourth gender. It's boss. <laughs> he, she, they, or Bowser. <laughs> Unless you want to be a girl boss, then it's sort of gendered. But it's more yeah, of an attitude so. than a gender. I like being a boy boss. Boy boss. Never in We're, the history of men has there ever been a boy boss. <laughs> it's time for us men to take back the title of boss. <laughs> yeah, welcome in to our November episode. But before we, we welcome all of you in, let's welcome in one person in particular. Okay. One very special person. Knock on the door. Our, <laughs> Spiro Agnew. <laughs> That's a joke you're going to get in the middle of the episode during an ad break. But uh, boy, <laughs> will it have been something you have forgotten by then. We just plant, you don't even realize it, but we just planted the seed for a joke. <laughs> that might make sense later. But we're going to be so many vice presidents in <laughs> to referencing in this episode that you won't even remember we said that. But we've got one new Patreon supporter. We've got Travis Dunbar. 
Travis Dunbar. Of Sad Girls Club, oh. a.k.a. Travis Latrine, which hey. I guess is not his French last oh, name. Oh, boo. Let's change. Let's legally change yeah. Mr. Dunbar's last name. Hi, Travis. Hey, uh, Travis, thank you for supporting us on Patreon. Uh, guess what? Your name is Travis Latrine now legally. <laughs> Look down at your passport. It's like Back to the Future and the Dunbar is turning to Latrine. You got to call. Framed the- for. <laughs> <laughs> Frank for embezzlement on my passport. You got to call the airport ahead of time and let them know that your last name because they're they might not let you on. Yeah, he's like about to take a flight yeah. back to France where he's from, Latrine. We need to see your passport. Uh, monsieur. Don't pretend like you don't speak French, okay? On our other podcast, you were quite fluent. Oh, wee oui, wee, oui, oh baguette. Oh, it's actually croissant. Uh, oh, you're, re- you're referencing our French language podcast. <laughs> that we've started. Yeah, we, we've started a Duolingo podcast where I teach all of you French. But yeah, thank you for it. You can also support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Meekly for as little as $5 a month. You could support this show by getting postcards sent to you, but you can actually do less than that and you get nothing, but you still get our appreciation and you support us because you know what? Things are so expensive right now. I know it's expensive for everybody, but if you've got any spare change lying around, even a dollar a month, we would gladly accept that. So uh, before we get into November, let's get back into October. Let's dip, 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 Let's dip back into the doo of months, October. What did you do in October in this fair fair city of ours? She loves me, by the way. She loves me, by the way. Last month, my thing to do, I didn't, I said I had nothing to do, and then I used that space to talk about the passing of Doc Guthrie, but there was actually- Because you murdered him. Too soon? I don't know. That's too soon. Um, <laughs> you didn't. <laughs> I think. You saying it's too soon makes me think that you did it. <laughs> Two things I actually did in September that I want to talk about and I, I didn't. We're both involved our comedy parents, Chris and Cindy, Chris Crittenton, Cindy Aravina, who are our comedy parents. Them two, lovely couple, and me and my girlfriend Ada went to the Bob Baker Marionette Theater to see the Fiesta show, which was fantastic. Yeah, you mentioned that space. briefly in our Edward Torres music box That's episode. right. That's where I saw Edward Torres performing there. And I don't know if I said there, but their new theater space is so beautiful and it fits them so perfectly. Like, I'm very sad that they had to leave their old theater, but them in the new space in Highland Park is wonderful. And it is, they have maybe, I'll have to think about some more, but maybe my favorite gift shop in all of LA places. But we kind of decided that their gift shop was one of the, in their old space, we were kind of debating of whether or not they had the best gift shop in town. Yeah, I think now they have a dedicated space with like glass cases and wall, like wall space and a lot of hand painted stuff at the new theater in Highland Park. And it's great. And then we walked to the Highland Park brewery afterwards and had nice gossip. We had a little gossip session. About the puppets? Yeah. Who do you think is sleeping with who? But the shows are just fantastic and I I, I was... No strings attached. (laughs) There was a a great thing that I I was like, I lost my mind over in the performance where I thought that a mistake was happening. Like I thought strings were getting tangled up Mm -hmm. and uh, another person had to come and help out and it was actually split so like a bird gave birth to a little egg so somebody came and it looked like they had messed up but they separated and from the initial bird a second puppeteer had to come in and then take an egg away then the egg started dancing and hatched it's so great if you've never been to Bob Baker Marriott Theater please go it was an accident but it just so happened while the accident was happening an egg was laid by one of the puppets and that's how Pinocchio was born <laughs> a lot of people know this which came first the marionette egg or Pinocchio an age old question but I also had gone to their a couple weeks before that I'd gone to um, their comedy show at the clubhouse which is on Vermont in the same lot as the Fat Burger which is like oh I thought you meant Mar- the Bob Baker 
Sugar Mary. No, 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 no. Sorry. No. Chris and Cindy, they have a show uh, which is a parody of Shark Tank called Kitty Pool. And they do it now. They used to do it in their backyard. Now they do it in the clubhouse. It's a really great show. I think the one in November is going to be on the 25th. And our good friend, one of the hosts for Profiles and Eccentricity podcast, John Fahey is going to be on that show. Oh, really? So we should probably go. I'm busy, but and you could probably. I mean, it, it sounds there. nice, but I'm really busy. I'm really busy. What is that? A Friday? I can't. Go. <laughs> what is that? A day of the week? No, 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 no. So I did those two things in September with those two, and I forgot to bring it up, and I felt bad. So, yeah, well, uh, I guess uh, you know, don't do anything with me in September, my birth month, my birth uh, month. <laughs> but um, yeah, what'd you do for October? You've been doing a lot. Speaking, no, we're, last recording you had just come back from Halloween Horror yeah. Nights, which, by the way, Bob Baker does a show at Not Scary Farm or Not Spooky Farm, actually. Oh, Really? Yeah, they have oh, I didn't a know that. Show. Uh, but I wasn't at Not Spooky Farm. I was at Not Scary Farm, but that's Buena Park. <laughs> Let's talk about something I did in Los Angeles, which was going to this. This isn't spooky, a little bit, depending on what you consider spooky. The Star Eco Station in Culver City. Oh, okay. Which is like a basically like if someone tries to smuggle like an anaconda through LAX, uh-huh. they're like, you can't take this. Oh. And then this is where the anaconda goes. It's a exotic animal rescue. Right. You can visit it. You can you can volunteer there, which I would love to do. I would love to be an anaconda there. I feel like they would <laughs> smuggle me. I'll <laughs> gladly get uh, stopped at customs <laughs> to be living there. Throw me in the cage with the tegu. <laughs> it, it's like all these exotic, you can take tours, which is what we did. They have like summer camps for kids. Kids, uh-huh. which I, why does it only have to be for kids? But <laughs> it, like snakes that were stopped at LAX, giant lizards. There was a alligator that was in a bathtub in a hotel in Santa Monica. Oh God, and they were like, "What do we do with this?" So they sent it over there. It was a it was a Lyle Lyle crocodile. It was Lyle Lyle crocodile. <laughs> year one. Lyle Lyle year one. Yeah, it was Alan Allen alligator. <laughs> they had a a mountain lion that some people had gone on a hike in like Griffith Park or something. And they're like, oh, look at this little abandoned kitty. Oh my God. They took it home. And about a few months later, they realized, oh, this is- All our dogs are missing. (laughs) Uh, Honey, did you decapitate the cat? (laughs) I'm okay with it. I just, I wish you would have told me. I bought a bunch of cat food. I found a bunch of cat scarves. (laughs) It's just like all of these crazy animals and like, you don't know what to do with them. So they're, they're being sheltered there until they can find a better home or release them back into the wild. So I got, and you get to pet side. Didn't get to pet the bobcat or the alligator, sadly. Shame. They kept telling me I had too much turkey juice on my fingers. <laughs> There's a t- uh, the aforementioned tegu, which is like a huge, like, Gila monster almost. But, like, with it has, like, really strong cheeks. And we were, like, in line to pet it. And I felt, like water fly all over me. I was like, Melissa, did you spit on me? Yeah, are you peeing on me? <laughs> I, I told you to stop doing that. <laughs> but this tegu has like such a long tongue that it just like oh, throws splatters. spit everywhere. Oh, and yeah. I, I loved it, oh, Greg. I absolutely loved it. They had fruit eating piranhas. <laughs> I, I got to hold snakes and I was talking to some birds. Some... <laughs> And I don't which mean is, dames. I was just about to say. <laughs> which is a type of bird. <laughs> but like a lot of the birds can speak, you know, I don't want to put them down, but limited English. They're not from this country, but it's limited English. Well, I kept saying, what you doing? What you doing? And I said, hey, good looking. Uh, what you got what cooking? You got cooking? Some, one of them, I was, I was like, hello. And it's like, it was just like it was like <laughs> yeah, that intro, intro we yeah. did and there was one that melissa said because they were feeding him cucumber and melissa was like you eating cucumber and it was like cucumber <laughs> and then it said i'm gonna kill you <laughs> 
It just kept repeating my address, then it was going to kill me. What's that supposed to mean? And then the Tegu came in with my social security (laughs) number. Yeah, it was, uh, it's a really cool place. Like, especially for kids, especially for kids. But if you are like me, you are going to have a great time there. And the money for the tour goes obviously towards uh, the CEO's pocket. Um, (laughs) But it's a really- He's a gorilla. (laughs) So uh, it's win-lose. Yeah. And that was my thing of the month. But speaking of animals- (laughs) <laughs> exotic animals. We have Greg Gonzalez here. <laughs> For this episode, we it's November, yes. and there's one place you're going to be spending a lot of time this month of November. We apologize in advance, but you'll be spending a lot of time there. Grocery stores yep. for Thanksgiving and then for Christmas, whatever that is. Yeah, we're all going to be stuck together in grocery markets trying to keep ourselves from fist fighting each other for like, I yeah, don't know, the like, last can of pumpkin puree. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the time of the month where we all buy too much whipped cream. <laughs> I know. The grocery stores is where we're all going to be. So we thought we'd cover the history of a few of the biggest grocery stores in town. Yeah. Just to, So while you're miserably trying to find a turkey that mm. feels right to you. You could turn to somebody in the produce aisle and be like, did you know? That you should did you? And, and they'll be so bored by what you're going to tell them that they're going to drop the turkey. We covered three grocery stores. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I'm I'm going first. You I was are. I was like expecting you. Like, Greg, um, tell me some facts. Greg, Greg, teach me. Get ready. Let's start this first one. Okay. Okay. You want to start? Let's do you, it. Are you all ready for this? No. 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 I said no. <laughs> so sometimes art imitates life. We all know this. Yes. But every day, Vallarta imitates Vilaifa. <laughs> <laughs> you standing in front of a chalkboard, just like crossing words out. <laughs> they have a rhyming dictionary open to Vallarta. I have like a VR, th- I have yeah. like Oculus on my eyes and it's doing the beautiful mind thing for <laughs> me. I really lured you into that one. I made it seem like, oh, maybe Daniel's reformed. Maybe he's not going to say stupid things anymore. Guess what? Maybe he can help himself. Oh, guess what? He can. <laughs> so we're talking about Vallarta. Yes, We've we all been there. Have we? No. Yeah, I guess a I've lot been, of people. I mean, you and I have been to Vallarta. We've been to Vallarta together, but I, don't, I can't speak for everybody. Everybody's been to a Vallarta. Uh, no, let me check my notes. Everybody's <laughs> been to Vallarta? Because it's not all over LA. No. It's a little more valley-centric, which I'll get into. Uh-huh. There's more like Northgate Market, I think, is more in like the eastern reaches of LA. Yeah, I believe so. But Vallarta, our first stop at the store... I, I tried to frame it as if we're all going shopping together. Oh, that's cute. And you will be holding all... The, I hope you brought your canvas bags because I brought nothing. Yeah. You're going to have to hold everything and pay for everything. And I only shop on the discount rack. You're going to have to also carry it inside the house and put everything away as yeah. well. Which Walmart apparently does for you. Like you can order online to get it delivered and they come into your house and put everything in your refrigerator when you're not there, which sounds like a bad idea. Yeah. It sounds like a really, really, really bad idea. <laughs> They're welcome to your entire kitchen <laughs> and understanding the layout of <laughs> he came soups next to cereals. I don't want anyone knowing I that. I know. That's what I'm most afraid of. People criticizing how many mustards I have. Yeah. Why would he put ketchup in the kitchen? It's not open yet. How many half open mustards yeah. I have. Uh, there's still a little life in it. And I like the fart sound. <laughs> so our first thought, we're going to the beloved local chain known as Vallarta Supermarkets. Yay. It all started... In Halostotitlan, okay, in Jalisco, Mexico. Cool. I know I've pronounced at least one of those three words properly. You mean Mexico? <laughs> oh no! Oh no! I forgot to soften my X's. <laughs> I forgot to leave my X's in water all night before I did this. So it started when a little boy named Enrique Gonzalez, oh, senior, oh, was born. Although I guess he probably wasn't born a senior. Senior is a very popular last name. <laughs> 
<laughs> You'd be surprised. This guy's got to be related to you, right? I mean, <laughs> how many Gonzalez's are yeah, there? Yeah, how many could there be, really? I know we have like four Patreon supporters not related to you named Gonzalez, but this one's got to be related to you. <laughs> so he was born on a farm to a family who farmed. So being a farm person, he grew up living that farm life, being a farmer. Eventually, in 1965, his family made the move up north in search of a better life, although being a farmer in Mexico sounds pretty nice. I don't know much about it, but it, yeah, you're right. It sounds pretty nice. I know that some bad stuff happens with the cartel and farmers, but like, if you can get away from that, yeah. living on a farm in Mexico, are you kidding me? If you could destroy the entire cartel system, it'd be pretty nice. <laughs> as a farmer? As a farmer, yeah. As a humble little farmer, you destroyed the entire cartels. Uh, I'm imagining it's going to be like a siege, like Night of the Living Dead, and like all the cartel people are coming to my farmhouse, and, <laughs> and I stop them all. First of all, where's the bathroom? Okay, before we fight, everyone got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so they decided to settle in the beloved... San Fernando Valley. Wow. Right off the bat, Enrique. And I guess they weren't looking for that much of a better life. Huh. <laughs> Did you know that the cartel uh, owns this podcast, which is recorded in the San Fernando Valley? Oh, no. We, um, <laughs> we're now MS-13 production. <laughs> this has been an MS-13 production. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Um, so right off the bat, which by the way, is not the cartel. I don't want the MS-13 yeah, 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 coming yeah, yeah, after yeah, us yeah, quite yeah. literally. I just said the words. Words and numbers. Yeah, Letters said, and numbers. Yeah, yeah THX-138 is going to come out. <laughs> right off the bat, Enrique and his four brothers all got jobs working in restaurants to keep the family afloat. And also they went to Van Nuys High School. Oh, wow. But his brothers eventually drifted out of the food industry. One of them got an art degree and ended up working at JPL as a quality assurance technician. Oh, cool. And the other three seem to have gotten jobs working for MGM. All right. But Enrique stayed in the food world. He was working as a cook at a bar named Puerto Vallarta. And for a while, it seems he was also a cook at Corky's in Sherman Oaks. Oh, really? Okay. Which Corky's has so much lore yeah. around it. Like Billy Joel once yeah. played the piano here. <laughs> the owner of Vallarta was a cook here. And now it's an abandoned yeah. used car lot. It's going to be a Chick-fil-A soon. Oh, God. So he was wary of getting into the world of cooking because he was afraid that if people saw him with an apron on, they would say he was gay. Okay. But lucky for us, he got over that homophobia and the homophobia of apparently everybody who goes into a restaurant. And in 1974, he had saved up enough money to open his own club called La Cabana. Ooh. And he hated it. <laughs> he hated the late nights. He hated the rowdy clientele. Uh, much to Enrique's relief, the place burned down. Oh, wow. Interesting. And instead of rebuilding it, he just rented out the building to somebody else to suffer. And he used that money to open up his dream. A meat market in Van Nuys. Hell oh, yeah. Oh, Greg. I mean, right behind being a farmer in Mexico, meat a meat market in Van Nuys, Greg. A butcher? Ooh. Oh, that's nice. Oh my God. Living that Marty life? <laughs> it, not bad. It sounds pretty cool. It does sound pretty cool. Yeah. I kind of like, I, I'm I'm very squeamish about like surgery and that sort of, like, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I know they said, Danny, you want to come down to UCLA and watch the surgery tonight? Yeah. Uh, I don't like that, but I feel like I could have been a good butcher. Yeah, I, I kind of like that. that. I kind of like the mutilating of I mean, it's meat. it's the 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 Venn diagram, the middle of the two things that you love, which is animals and food. And the consumption thereof. The, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the the little gray area. Oh, I could be an exotic animal meat butcher. <laughs> a bobcat meat, Lyle Lyle crocodile. So it was a meat market in Van Nuys. Cool. The dream. 
Yeah. So in 1984, but I also saw 1985, Carniceria Vallarta, named after the bar he first worked in when he came to town, Puerto Vallarta Bar, opened for business. Uh, I found two addresses of where this original one might have been. One is 13302 Victory, which could be it because while that's no longer a Vallarta Carniceria or Carniceria? Carniceria. It's a way I've always said it. Which uh, I don't practice Carniceria. It, right now, it's it's a Vallarta fish restaurant. Oh, so okay. it's like, it's Vallarta, but it's just a restaurant. So I feel like that could be it. Uh-huh. But the problem is that's more Valley Village than Van Nuys, but maybe that used to be Van Nuys. Yeah, yeah. But the second maybe more likely one is that 6807 Woodman, which is Van Nuys, but it's now a Panad... Here's another, Panaderia or Panaderia? I always had Panaderia. Panaderia. I don't practice Panaderia. <laughs> um, it's a Panaderia okay. a, you know, bakery for people who can't pronounce it as, uh, <laughs> as eloquently as, as I can. <laughs> it's where me and Melissa actually got drinks and pastries last Christmas morning. And oh, we, really? we walked around with them. It was really nice. And th- so, but, I mean, both those places used to be Vallarta's. Right. It's just a matter of which one was the first Vallarta. Mm-hmm. But back in the day, Carniceria Vallarta yeah. was a small little butcher shop that focused on selling the cuts of meat that you'd find in Mexico to cater to the Mexican-American population of Van Nuys, who depended on little places like this to get the sort of food they were used to that weren't being sold in the mainstream markets at the time, which is crazy because it was 1985 in Los Angeles and there wasn't a supermarket catered directly to Mexican people in a huge city that's been yeah. a large part Mexican for yeah. 200 years. Yeah, that was once Mexico, yeah. It's uh, it's weird, but there was nothing just except for these little stores. Reagan era, come uh, on. Spiro Agnew, am I right? <laughs> You'll get it later. Uh, who is Reagan's vice president? <laughs> I, <laughs> a jelly bean? Uh, I don't Lady remember. Bird? I always it's Ladybird. I always think it's that super white guy who got no. Told. Reagan's vice president was a super white guy. Who's the who's I president? Jerry Lewis? <laughs> no, Dan Quayle was running for president. He was never a vice president. And you, sir, are no JFK. <laughs> I really wish you hadn't said that. So funny. Uh, So the carniceria was successful. And after saving up some more money, Enrique opened up a few more carnicerias. But in 1990, the weird void, the Mexican food market in LA that we were just talking about dawned on him. Why isn't there a supermarket for Latinos? Yeah. Next question, why aren't I opening a supermarket for <laughs> Latinos? So that year, 1990, he opened up the very first Vallarta supermarket in an old Park Lane market in Van Nuys, which appeared to be at 13051 Victory Boulevard, which is also now Valley Village-ish. That's if the store number system on their website is the number in which they are open. The sequential number? Yeah, yeah, but I also saw that the one that just became a 99-cent store across from Balboa Park on Victory and Woodley used to actually be a Park Lane market, so maybe it was oh that one. Okay. So there's a lot of uh, mystery behind where the first one was. Yeah. So one of these was the first fire at the supermarket. So the goal here was to address the needs of LA's Latino population that other grocery stores were not. That meant decorating in a more Mexican style, but it also meant the actual products. Two things important to a Mexican kitchen is meat and produce. So fire yeah. supermarkets had to deliver on both those fronts. Enrique already had the meat part down. He's, Mar- he's, he's Mexican Marty. Yeah. Uh, Mar- Martin. Martin. No, that's French. So he had the meat market already, so he knew how to do that. He was offering types of meats you'd use in Mexican cooking, but now he had to bring in the vegetables and fruits that you need, your tomatillos, etc. Mm-hmm. I couldn't think of more. <laughs> uh, maybe a mango, I don't know. Uh, and like how I... Cilantro. Cilantro. I was going to jump in and say cilantro and pretend like I was really smart and cultured, but... <laughs> Have you ever tried uh, cilantro? Cilantro. And like how I've been switching between using the word Mexican, Latino, not just Mexican taste, but also Central and Southern American cuts of meat right. and vegetables 
as well, and also the right spices and seasonings he needed to have. They offered prepared foods as well, and pan dulce, which you wouldn't find in a Ralph's. Yeah. They also sold the Mexican versions of American products, like laundry detergent and stuff like that, because of the slight differences in the packaging and the product. It was more familiar to the Mexican, Central, Southern American customers who, yeah, I could get tied at Ralph's or whatever, but this one looks a little more familiar. This one looks better. This Coke is in a bigger glass (laughs) bottle. And obviously it was successful. The market and that neighborhood especially was literally starved for this sort of food. So before long, it was time to open a second location. And for this, his four brothers and his sister all quit their jobs and joined him in the Vallarta business. Wow, that's pretty cool. Uh, Not just that, his uncles also. So in all, he had about 20 of his relatives running the two stores with him. Pretty cool. Uh, In these early days, they apparently used to offer free rides home with your groceries because a lot of their customers had to take the bus a long way to get to these two stores. It's a great service. So they offered an easier way to get home, yeah. which is like a, but would they go inside your home and put it all in your refrigerator <laughs> for you? Can you also cook all the stuff? Yeah. <laughs> also, we have a spare bedroom. Could you guys <laughs> like live here and take care of our kids when we're at work? I love the idea of like giving people a ride home that had to take the bus. That's a slippery slope. <laughs> so that they also became known for their world famous carne asada, yep. which I have mentioned many times on this show. Whenever Alberto has one of his birthday barbecues, it's always the carne asada from Vallarta. It's so good. It's delicious and it's spiced with a special secret blend that I have heard rumors is sunny delight. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a big deal that they now build themselves as home of the original carne asada, which seems grand. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. We slaughter the first cow <laughs> here at Vallarta, but the success just kept on coming. They kept expanding throughout the 90s, including their silver our location at 13820 Foothill Boulevard, which was the first to have an on-site restaurant, tortilleria, and bakery. But they got so many requests for one in the West Valley that in the year 2000, they opened two new locations in Canoga Park, one at 21555 Roscoe, which is now closed, and 21208 Sherman Way, which is still open. They opened Mm -hmm. those the same year. Really? And they're not even far apart. Like There were so many people in the West Valley that were like, please, I don't want you to keep driving me home with my groceries. The bus system is the valley is so hard. Please just open one close to me. It would would save my life. What's interesting about these two is that they were the first two locations built specifically to be Vallarta's. Like the other ones had just moved into older buildings. Yeah. And Enrique's brother with the art degree, Miguel, helped design the look of them to be both modern, but also reminiscent of buildings in Jalisco and down in Mexico. Uh, And that's really kind of all there is history-wise with Vallarta. They have 53 locations now throughout Southern California, but I really think it is a a more of a valley. Like, they're outside the valley, but I think they're more valley-centric. I I never knew of, because I don't spend a lot of time in South LA, so I know, I think that there's some there... But because it's so spread out and the valley sort of can be compact, in at least in my brain, it's such oh, like you mean a, the place that's bigger than most of New York City? It's settled pretty down. Um, the good part. <laughs> Don't come at me with your <laughs> with your measuring stick contest. <laughs> but, but they just seem more concentrated in the valley because we're in the bowl at the moment. Yeah, yeah. It's it's more self contained. Pretty big I mean, in the valley. It, Everything's bigger in the valley. I don't, I don't know if the valley has the word self contained in the dictionary, but okay, sure. We don't have much of a dictionary. Yeah. <laughs> um, they're very conscious about being eco friendly as well, trying to make sure that one third 
third of all their waste goes to composting and recycling That's sites. Great. And also they try to be as energy efficient as possible. During the pandemic, they started offering online ordering that you could pick up in store. Mm-hmm. And they also have the Gonzalez Family Foundation, which gives money to hospitals, after school programs and community programs and stuff like that, which I feel like you should get a cut of. Uh, you're part of the Gonzalez family. <laughs> make me work? No, they should be giving it to you. Yeah, And I by agree. association, I should be getting, because I get half of all your earnings. We have that on paper. I don't know why you signed that contract. <laughs> in blood. And, uh, I didn't ask I, you to I do that. I gave you a pen. Yeah. <laughs> you weren't even bleeding at the time. You, you cut yourself. You took out a ceremonial knife and I, where'd you get this? I didn't know you could speak Latin. Um, there's also the mafia rumors we've all heard. Have you heard those? Uh, no. Maybe it's more of a valley urban legend, but there's always been mafia, much like this podcast being owned by the MS-13, which <laughs> everyone believes. There's always been cartel mafia, like, oh, Vallarta's run by the okay. mafia, like secretly run by the yeah. mafia. Well, they're the doing cartel. a great job. <laughs> Keep those prices down, am I right? Because there's a lot of fronts that are like, oh, you don't care what like the fronts- Conrad's flowers? Yeah, yeah. The, <laughs> like, you don't care what the actual business is. You just want to filter money. But like, if Vallarta, if it's true and Vallarta's run by the mafia, they're doing a great job at running a supermarket. Like maybe you should, you don't have to be in the mafia anymore. Maybe it's time to pivot the whole message (laughs) of the cartel. Um, Instead of cocaine and meth, how about tomatillos and cilantro? Piñatas. Yeah. Yeah, How about instead of piñatas filled with meth? Yeah. Tomatillos. (laughs) Cilantro, but it won't come out. You still have to dig your hand. You have to get a little kid to dig their hands and pull it out. (laughs) Well, it's like a, it's like a shaker of herbs, but it's, it's a piñata. There's, I've found no basis for any of the, obviously there's not going to be like. Are you sure? Did you look hard enough that there wasn't any truth to that? Greg, I went down to Jalisco (laughs) and I said, does anyone know where a gringo can meet the cartel? I had an eagle with a snake in its mouth on my forearm and I was just like, hey, everybody, I'm. I have some questions about the Mexican mafia. So there's, I found no basis and these, it's also probably a racist rumor. I don't know. So here's to you, Vallarta. Let this love letter be our ticket to a lifetime supply of carne asada. I can't imagine. I'm trying to go vegan and I still would like, okay, well, that would change my mind. Well, there's sunny delight on it. (laughs) It cancels it out somehow. Uh, So what do you, you've got, you've got a a more nationwide supermarket. Yeah. It it surprised me because I never really thought of this place as nationwide because it started here in Los Angeles. We're going to be talking about Trader Joe's. Oh. Everyone's favorite place to bitch (laughs) and complain. And when you're trying to, I have like, I have so many negative experiences at Trader Joe's, but I'm still like, well, I gotta go. That's where all the that's where all the cookies are at. Right. They got that pasta. Where am I gonna I like. get my JoJo's? Yeah, <laughs> those mints I like. <laughs> Trader Joe himself was born Joe Colombe in June of 1930 near San Diego, California. His father was an engineer for an aircraft manufacturer and his mom was a teacher and he grew up not eating cute little eccentric foods, but as the New York Times called it, New England boiled dinners and bacon oh. fat heavy quote unquote southern suicide cuisine. What? This is oh, what he, I, okay. Yeah, I see yeah, what that means. If I had to pick between being a farmer in Mexico and growing up as a New Englander eating boiled meat and pork fat or whatever. Farmer's got it going on. Boy, you're telling me. You grow up with your food. Um, you get to eat your best friends, Greg. <laughs> I told you not you're crying. I told you not to name it. I Didn't I tell you? <laughs> but I named him carne asada. <laughs> Joe went on to graduate high school in 1947, served a year in the Air Force, and got a bachelor's in economics and a master's in- Sergeant Joe. Surfer Joe. <laughs> same guy. Got a bachelor's- Eat it, Joe's. Is that the same guy? Same guy. Oh my God. Yeah. Cup of Joe. We did it, Joe. Is that the same guy? 
Let's go, Brandon. It's all the same guy. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> With his partner, Brandon. Trader Joe and Traitor Brandon. <laughs> we love this country. It's so beautiful. After serving in the Air Force, he got a bachelor's in economics and a master's in business administration from Stanford. Uh, Very well-educated man. So now it's 1954. Sorry, Mike Viartic. I grew up on a farm. <laughs> <laughs> a humble little farm in Stanford. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, Joe's in the Illuminati. Okay. It's now 1954. Okay. And Joe is now working for the pharmacy's drugstore chain called Rexall. I've heard of that. Yeah. They're still kind of, are they still around or maybe there's just like a brand name called Rexall? Or I, I think there might be a brand name Rexall. Rexall I was familiar with, but only like, I'm like, oh, do I know that from like Looney Tunes? Yeah. 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 Like I have, a, I have to always check myself. Like, is that the same way? I'm going to go to Gimbal's today. I'm like, oh, that's a thing <laughs> yeah. from Mary Melodies. It's not real. <laughs> it was a thing in the 40s. When do I, how do, why do I remember shopping at the five and done? Oh, <laughs> it was John Mellencamp. That's right. The Piggly Wiggly was that John Mellencamp thing. Okay. The company Rexall gave Joe the task of developing their new chain of stores known as Pronto Market. So Rexall was going to create a market system called Pronto. Pronto Market was going to be huge. They were going to be the first drugstore to sell health and beauty aids, paperback books, as well as promoting like phone fish. So like what we know a, a pharmacy does now is like yeah, kind of a, yeah. an all, they, all services. They still kind of do pictures. Well, if we think about like Rite Aid and CBS for a while in the 90s, we're doing all CBS these. or CVS? CVS. <laughs> Uh, CBS was doing it too. They did photo finishing, but it was for, it's called television. Heard of it? <laughs> no. It's called Twilight Zone. For and this has been an MS-13 production. <laughs> That's CBS. I can't wait for MS-13 to open their own movie studio. Yeah, it's going to be really great. I mean, it's going to be like the Saudis using Hollywood to filter money through. Now MS-13 is going to have their own. DC is actually now a subsidiary of MS-13. <laughs> a lot of people don't know that. DC E-Universe. They're more of Green Lantern fans than Marvel fans. <laughs> for Rexall, Joe is scouting possible locations, which is how Joe ends up in Los Angeles. Uh, after Joe manages to open six locations of Pronto Market, Rexall decided they didn't want Pronto after all and ordered Joe to liquidate them after he did all this work of finding places to put them. Joe didn't do that, but instead took out a that, bank. That, I mean, that's the equivalent of of raising animals on a farm, <laughs> opening a bunch of businesses that they then tell you to liquidate. Yeah, liquidate them. Turn them into strips of pharmacies that I can grill up. <laughs> Ooh, brick and mortar. That sounds delicious. I'll have one of those. <laughs> Joe didn't do that. He didn't liquidate, but instead took out a bank loan and borrowed money from Adore, A-D-O-H-R, Milk Farms. Adore Milk Farms? Yeah, oh, I've yeah. heard of those. That's in LA, isn't it? I believe so. I'm not quite sure. I can only research one thing at a time. <laughs> so he borrowed money from them and bought the company himself, managing to open 18 locations of Pronto Market. That's well. Where was this? This was in Stanford or, or no? No, this is Los Angeles. Okay. Yeah, yeah, in Los I Angeles guess he now. just went to school in Stanford. Yeah. So swell. Great. Everyone loves and remembers Pronto Market and aren't Pronto Market's parking lots the worst? No, <laughs> that's not how this story goes. Because in 1965, Odora was bought by a rival convenience store chain who had its eye on opening locations throughout Los Angeles. That chain was 7-Eleven. Hmm. Okay. And with them controlling his finances now because they bought a door and he borrowed money from a door, there was no foreseeable future in the convenience store game uh, with the Pronto markets that he had. And instead had to fashion his Pronto locations into something different. Okay. So he didn't sell them or... He didn't sell them. He he bought the. But Seven Eleven wanted to buy them. Seven Eleven was opening up all over the. Okay, so, so he's like, well, what's the point? Because Seven Eleven was oh. already big. I think in like. <laughs> Way to believe in yourself, Joe. <laughs> I forget if they're from Nashville. I think there's uh, somewhere maybe in Texas or one of the Southwest is where Seven Eleven starts. Nashville, Texas. Nashville, Texas. Yeah, I forget where they originated from, but they had already become right. popular. So coming to Los Angeles, he's like, well, how am I going to compete okay. wow. with 7-Eleven? Uh, the first sign of trouble and he jumped. Well, I mean, not wrong. You can't not compete wrong. with 7-Eleven no. unless you're AMP. You well, you grew up in the Valley, so it's a little bit different. I just didn't have 7-Elevens around me. The closest 7-Eleven was when I went to my cousin Lizzie's place in 
West Covina and we're like, is that a 7-Eleven? Like from the movies? <laughs> did you grow up around 7-Elevens? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I did. Okay. I mean, I certainly... Well, then what was I robbing? <laughs> I, I feel like I did, but now I'm, but I can't like remember, you know, there's not like a, a sepia tone montage right, playing right, right, in my right. head of 7-Elevens that I was at, but I feel like they were, must have been there. No, no pastel 80s neon, uh, like when Stranger Things wants to replicate the 80s and yeah. like, okay, this is 280s. So it was the mid to late 60s and Joe Colomb was looking at different approaches to running a market. Two things caught his attention. First, the Boeing 747 airplane was figuratively on the horizon and Joe knew... <laughs> That this meant more. What's that, <laughs> what's what that in the that? sky? That, what's wrong with that bird? So Joe knew that that meant more Americans would be traveling and would become exposed to exotic foods from other countries. That was a thought he had. Okay. Probably based on an article. This was the 50s or 60s? Uh, mid to late 60s. Okay. Where the 747 was just taking more people places. Right. And it become more more commercial. The second thing was that education levels for the average American was increasing. So young, smart, culturally curious Americans, they can go to regular supermarkets, but a specialty store would do really well with this emerging demographic of smarter, younger Americans. Huh. That's really interesting because there is a is connotation, the word, of Trader Joe's yeah. of like... That's a rich, elegant yeah. store, which isn't. It isn't. Like, it's arguably one of the cheaper places it's to affordable. get stuff. But it, that, that's an interesting thing that kind of stuck around if their goal was like, we're the highbrow grocery store, and it just kind of stuck. Yeah, it is absolutely a thing before he even opened the first market, he saw his demographic. And huh. this entire story, I think, is shaving down his specific demographic of who shops here. Yeah. And I feel like they've they've f- figured it out. You must have gone to state. You must be this educated exactly. to eat this well, it's, uh, knockoff. I think he said, I mean, I'll get to it, but I think it, the demographic is like, Waffle. Overeducated, which doesn't mean smart. It just means like you're very educated, but you also are poor working class. So it's like people who drink wine, but it's $2 wine. Right. Instead of beer. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's us poor people who want to seem rich. Yeah. And then the rich people who want to seem poor. <laughs> the illusion of middle class, which there is no one. And a secret. Okay. So those were the two things he was thinking about when thinking about okay. what kind of market he wanted. And there, there was a secret third thing he thought of was that the more education people had, the more alcohol they consumed. <laughs> the worse they can park. The smaller the parking lots will be. The more <laughs> educated, the more alcohol they drink. The more, yeah, the more education people had, the more alcohol they consume. Because as we all know, there's nothing more depressing than knowing things. <laughs> as he would later say, the store was meant for overeducated, not necessarily smart, but overeducated and underpaid people for all the, as he says, the classical musicians, museum curators, and journalists. That that was like what he was going for. Okay. I feel like a museum curator makes pretty good money, but now we've met a few. Yeah. I don't get the impression that <laughs> I did swipe their wallets when we met them and eh, not much in there. A few moths, but... Lots of membership cards to other museums, which is probably where all their money goes. So in 1981, he told the Allied Times his ideal patron was, as he says, this is a person who got a Fulbright scholarship, went to Europe for a couple of years, developed a taste for something other than Velveeta by the way of cheese, something more than ordinary beer by way of alcoholic beverages, and something other than Folgers by way of coffee. And this guy's got my number. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, it's actually not true. I don't like much cheese. I don't like much coffee and I don't drink wine. But hey, I love your JoJo's. <laughs> Maybe not the overeducated crowd he's going for. <laughs> Just say, I might not be as smart as I you think might. I am. <laughs> Wondering how many scholarships you got. Not many. Okay. I like Velveeta. And I sit around with the boys chugging cores <laughs> on the couch we keep in the alley. Oh no, I'm king of the hill. How did this happen to me? So And, and Boomhauer was there? <laughs> and Bill was there. Dale? So in 1967, 
picking out a spot on the Arroyo Parkway in Pasadena, Joe Colombe opened up his first Trader Joe's location. Going with his idea of the perfect demographic for his market, this location was picked strategically as it was close to both PCC, Pasadena City College, and Caltech, California Technical okay. Institute, or as the Simpsons say, Calcutta Technical Institute. <laughs> and it being in the late 60s, Polynesian culture and tiki this, tiki that were really hip and fun. So the first store went with the South Seas look, oh, okay. putting all the tropical shirts and reworking the name of the famous Polynesian restaurant, Trader Vic's, is how we get the name and feel for there Trader right. Joe's. Now it all makes sense. Never even thought about how it is kind of tiki themed. Yeah, yeah. I, I just assume like, wow, they seem to always hire people who like Hawaiian shirts. <laughs> One inspires the other. They and must be pretty educated. Wow, you've heard of Hawaii before and not just the, the <laughs> Brady Bunch episode where Greg gets the thing. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Although all of them are sort of tailored to their neighborhood. Like the Studio City one has like film reels and oh, stuff right. like that around it. The remaining Pronto markets he owned would now become Trader Joe's. Pretty early in the life of Trader Joe's, Joe Colombe launched a helpful, cheapy newsletter to educate customers on food and wine. Initially, it was called the Insider's Report. We all know it now as the Fearless Flyer. Right. Uh, this is Which seen- is, uh, that was the, the pilot that Snoopy was trying to take down. <laughs> The Red Baron hates the Fearless Flyer. Um, let me tell you right now how the Fearless Flyer feels about it. Not scared. Unafraid. No, he's not backing down. Do you ever read the Fearless? Do you ever just sit down and crack open the Fearless Flyer in front of your Fearless Fireplace? Trying to decode uh, messages? Uh, no, not really. I, I've been around them before. It's kind of like uh, like the Simpsons thing of the Jay Peterson catalog where it's like describing... Not Simpsons. Did I say Simpsons? You I did. meant Seinfeld. The Seinfeld oh, thing okay. of the Jay Peterson catalog where it's like describing like, and I was traversing the Alps oh. and I made my way through the snow in my woolen park. Parka, but it, it's it's kind of like that with okay. but instead of wool and parka it's like cherry tomatoes <laughs> it's oh, so like, i'm not missing much it's it's like fun in theory but when i sit down to like i want to read this like there's a lot of pun like trader joe's you know pun central yeah I, speaking of our comedy parents i remember one time you me and chris and cindy were talking about like we should all get jobs writing the puns for <laughs> trader joe's and the writer's room we called trader jokes <laughs> <laughs> but but it's all just kind of that. And after a little bit, it's like, okay, I've had enough. <laughs> I'm exhausted. Yeah, it's kind of like, it's, it's like we talk about with the Onion articles, like right. the headline's enough. So anyways, Fearless Flyer, uh, this is seen as one of Joe's most successful tactics in gaining dedicated shoppers. While it had recommendations, it also challenged conservative issues and was pro-environmentalism back when it was synonymous with being like a hippie tree hugger instead of like it is now, which is like we're all begging to not be Mad Max next year. Yeah, like in the 70s when all the bad guys and all the squares and bad guys in the movie were like, you can't burn this trash. (laughs) Watch me, says Burt Reynolds. Uh, Wearing a styrofoam suit. (laughs) Watch me. (laughs) Spraying deep on his hair <laughs> or his mustache, I guess. This new letter was pointed and he shot it just at the right demographic and it worked. So it took maybe five years for Joe to find proper footing with the stock of his store. Cologne identifies these faces differently. I guess he has a, a autobiography, which is really funny and like charming. I, I didn't read it for the research, but I had I had read some summations. The first phase was called Good Time Charlie, meaning Trader Joe was for a point in its early days a supply heavy store with girly magazines. Girly magazines, I oh, like like porn, but no, I like Cosmo. Oh, um, uh, wait, what? It was like a- <laughs> They sold Cosmo? I mean, it was a store where you can buy a lot of stuff you need for parties, like big bags of chips and sodas and stuff okay. like that. After that, he went into what he calls whole earth hairy face, sort of upscale health food and liquor store. And it wasn't quite catching. Okay. Maybe that's also where part of the, the association comes from, because I know a lot of people think like, 
Trader Joe's. What do you want a diet? Like yeah, no, the, nothing in Trader Joe's is no, good for you. It's quite bad. Yeah, like yeah. all of that. Like all of the Joe brand stuff is like this isn't. No, this is really bad for you. Again, the illusion of healthy yeah. because it's being sold in a place like where is it country? And yeah, like, no, they this... wear Hawaiian shirts. It's okay. I bought these M and M's for Trader Joe's. I know. I know they're good. These aren't Oreos. The bag is a little bit weirder and thicker because it's you can compost. The bag is good for the environment. <laughs> so that wasn't quite catching. So he started to move in the direction of unique food items from different parts of the world. Some of it was healthy, all natural organic items. Some of it was just like fun and exotic. The first Trader Joe's private label grocery product was released in 1972 and it was granola. Okay. The granola, that thing that poisoned people at Woodstock? I eat their granola. Do you? I do. You're the type. Call me an overeducated, underpaid crunch boy, but... I eat granola. Overeducated, not that smart. Overpaid, crunch boy. <laughs> Overeducated on paper. <laughs> <laughs> and the store's stock didn't have anything you could get at Ralph's, like Coca-Cola, because Joe, like Elko's, was purposefully went after items that had a policy of discontinuity, which means there's no infinite stock of it. That's why they run out of stuff. A very annoying thing to me, because I know that they-, they Why? Because like, you fall in love with Ube pancakes, and you're like, <laughs> I'll have this forever. No, I fell in love with Sir Strawberry, the strawberry. <laughs> I, I was the damsel that Sir Strawberry rescued, <laughs> rescued from, from the, the train tower. tracks. <laughs> yeah. From those medieval train tracks. <laughs> I let down my straw from the tower <laughs> I was being kept on and Sir Strawberry climbed up. But it was a strawberry juice and uh-huh. I used to drink that all the time as a kid and it was so good yeah. and it probably hasn't been around in 20 years but it was so good but they, they do that all the time yeah, yeah I feel like we all have one thing like I think yeah. Ada has the like lost love yeah the I think they were like pistachio nut cookies if I remember correctly mm. and she's like oh, I went one day and they weren't there. Yeah. Like it's literally like a friend died. We all, we all have, we should start like a support group for people <laughs> who lost things to Trader Joe's. Because I know that a lot of their, like on all the things that say like, this is the Trader Joe's thing. Yeah. A lot of those, they just package as Trader yeah. Joe's because I, my, we have a family friend who runs an ice cream company mm-hmm. and he makes like the, I believe he makes the little ice cream cones and oh, a, a really? few other things like for Trader Yeah, they're really good. And he makes them for Trader Joe's, but they package it as Trader, Trader Joe's. Joe's so that makes sense that like, Trader Joe's Sir Strawberry was probably this like struggling strawberry juice company yeah. uh, that like closed down 20 years ago. Well, you got a cute little item there. What yeah. if uh, we bought all of it? Yeah. And then just have we put... made you a lot of money, but not enough money. <laughs> but not enough money. So that's what they were doing. And uh, okay. I'm not quite sure, like other than just creating shelves that were wholly unique, but it resulted in, like we're talking about like customers falling in love with stuff like ube pancakes. And now I have only like a cup full of ube pancake and one (laughs) pancake. You're you're cutting it with regular pancakes. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) I'm adding water to it. It's like, it'll grow, it'll grow. It's not even ube in it anymore. The final phase of Trader Joe's transition was referred to by Colum as the back the knife fate. When it kills a girl and is is very (laughs) musical about it. And it had a lot to do with the- Trader Choke. It had a lot to do with the 1976 California law. If I read it right, California legislators deregulated the supermarket industry, which previously was subsidizing the sale of milk and liquor, which mom and pop shops relied on. So once they regulated the supermarkets, it became impossible to compete with them. So just like Galco's, Joe Colomb had to get creative in how he stocked stores. So he rejected the average convenience store stock and instead went for value-oriented, hard-to-find trendy beers and wines, as well as making more Trader Joe's brands food. Trader Joe's was already the home of an inexpensive, unique 
wines, and imported cheeses and coffees. But now they were expanding their shelves to stock nuts, pastas, fish, veggies, and pre-made meals and snacks. Because his demographic, too educated, too poor, was locked in already, this move was a success. Cologne also started doing one-minute broadcasts on KFAC, the classical music station, where he discussed fine food and wine, what? and would close out his broadcast with, just as Joe Cologne of Trader Joe's. This helped immensely in raising uh. the profile of the store to his key demographic, classical music dweebs. Oh, people who are overeducated but actually stupid and they don't know what, real, what good music sounds like. Classical yeah. music. Imagine it was still 18th century. No, grow up. Be dumber. Be like me, dumber. At this point, Trader Joe's was doing pretty well. And in 1979, Joe and his employees, who had a 45% ownership stake in Trader Joe's, sold the market to German billionaires, Uh-oh. the brothers, Carl and Theo Albrecht, who Uh-oh. are the men behind... Aldi supermarkets. Oh, yeah. So, I remember all, so that. Trader Joe's is actually owned by Aldi, which I haven't heard a single good thing about Aldi. Oh, Aldi's great. Oh, is it? Here's your one single good thing. Aldi's great. I mean, it's kind of like a, like a war zone at times. Like it's, there's, well, no, like, there's no employees there, right? You like, it's German run, so it's like a war zone. Uh, no, there's employees. There's very few employees because okay. to keep costs down on everything, there's like few employees. Uh, you have the lights to, are off. The lights are off. The doors are locked. Uh, there's no food. <laughs> but uh, if you're a customer there, you always also work there because it's the yeah. com- com- communist. Um, they play no music in the store because you have to pay for the rights to the music. But they have really good stuff for really good prices. I mean, what you're going to the grocery store to cut a rug? No, it, it's just so funny that that's a choice. Like all the other supermarkets are like, oh, we'll make it a little more enjoyable. You're not getting like, those prices, Greg. You are not getting those prices. We Oh, we have a, a one-man band performing original <laughs> music in the corner. <laughs> He's our cousin. Like Elliot Smith type like singer-songwriter song <laughs> that are really sad between the bars. And it's just like, oh, you shop to that. <laughs> I could shop to this. Oh, I could shop to this. Yeah, Aldi's great. Okay. All these great. One person has told me that all these is great. Cologne stayed on as CEO and continued to perfect Trader Joe's shelves and demographic. The Fearless Flyer became less environmentally aggressive and more entertaining and helpful with more puns and <laughs> with suggestions and health tips. Cologne kept his eye on interesting and affordable store items as well as stocking hard-to-find beers and interesting wines. To keep prices low, he was continually changing inventory items, making it... It was frustrating because the stock was always changing, but he was always choosing affordable and interesting choices, ensuring people's attentions and interest. So, like, things were always changing. Like, oh, I used to eat this thing that I love, but now there's a new thing. Maybe I'll try that. So it's always, like... Because it was always changing, it was always so. It, it's but the reason it's always changing is because these companies might that he was sourcing them from didn't have a full infinite stock. Yeah, that's so weird. Yeah, it's weird to make that choice, but I guess like like he's thinking the whole time like I want the stocks to constantly be changing because the store space is actually pretty small and you don't know that till you're in there glass. and you're just trying to stuff. <laughs> I want people to hate this. I want people to feel... I want people kind of angry all the time. Like, parking is hard at every single Trader Joe's I've ever been to. And, like, as I experienced when I was trying to read about Will Smith hitting Chris Rock, there's nowhere you could just stand still in a Trader Joe's. Yeah. Any other market, you could. there's enough space where I could stand still and read a tweet or decide on something. But at Trader Joe's, you're always in somebody's yeah, way and business. somebody's always in your way. And everything's at a weird, like... like Diagonal. Did, doc, did the did cabinet of Dr. Calgary design this place? Like, why is everything at a weird, They're like... They're trying to keep ghosts away. <laughs> 
Because ghosts notoriously can't park in small spots and they hate diagonals. The store locations continue to expand, even though the size of the average store, as I was saying, did not expand, staying within the range of 6,000 square feet, which is crazy small and can times be fighting, create a fight. Fighting space. Yeah. But a smaller space was cheaper. A great deal of advertising came from the in-house newsletter, which by 1985 finally takes on the name Fearless Flyer and the private label for Trader Joe's all combined, all these things combined to keep profits coming in. It was actually pretty affordable to run a Trader Joe's. By the end of the 80s, Trader Joe's was very successful, taking in $150 million in sales from about 30 locations between LA and San Diego. Joe Cologne was now in his 60s and decided to retire. He handed his position in Trader Joe's off to a man named John V. Shields, who was uh, just as old as Cologne was, which I don't know why. Like, I'm 60. I'm going to give it to my friend who's also like 58. <laughs> the, the next generation. Yeah. But the two had known each other for about 40-something years, going back to a fraternity at Stanford. So they're old friends. Shields was a man who... Uh, Last time I saw him, he was 20. <laughs> butt chugging some beer. Some brewskis. Shields was a man... <laughs> to butt chug. To butt chug or not to butt chug. <laughs> Shields was a man who made great strides in department stores, and when Cologne plucked him, he had been working at Mervyn's. I guess four Mervyn's. Together, Shields and the Albrechts could lead Trader Joe's into the 90s. By this point, Trader Joe's started pushing out of Southern California, first to San Rafael in North California, and then they moved to, they opened locations in Arizona, Oregon, and Washington. By 1996, there was Trader Joe's on the East Coast in Boston, D.C., and New York, continuing the vibes and stock that Cologne established. And not only was the company expanding locations, but also the shelves. By this point, mid-90s, they were bringing in $500 million annually and had about 1,500 items in stock with some items from Hungary, Czech Republic, and the Caribbean. Like, really, really exotic food. The group purchased a million dollars worth of wine from Napa Valley Mahali Winery, roughly 240,000 bottles of wine at a bargain price. They wanted the Mahali brand, which was known for making sake at a winery. They would buy the stock and then sell the bottles cheaper than the markets could, which is like, so like a liquor store would sell the same bottle of wine for $8.50. Trader Joe's would sell for $2.99, which ensures people would grab probably multiple yeah. at a time. So you're making probably about the same amount of money by selling it cheaper. Because nobody's going to go to the liquor store like, I got got two bottles of this, but you can go to Trader Joe's like, well, it's cheaper. I can get three yeah, of them now. I can feed my addiction. <laughs> and they go for a drive. They did the same type of deal for 3,000 bottles of a mid-level Chardonnay, and it worked. So suddenly it became a business practice of buying like a whole winery's worth of bottles and selling it for way cheaper. The most well-known wine from Trader Joe's to the point where they almost became, the names became synonymous with each other was Charles Shaw wine, or as was traditionally known, Tubuckchuck, a brand created by Fred Franzia that would sell bottles of wine at Trader Joe's for a dollar ninety nine in two thousand two. Who's Charles Shaw then? I don't know. I looked into it and I couldn't figure it out. But I remember the story. The story is like he was getting a divorce from his wife. It was getting pretty ugly, and she got half of the winery sales. So he decided to sell it cheaper, so she didn't make as much money. Which was the story I remember hearing. But it was created by this Fred Franzia guy. So I don't know who the Charles Shaw is. Yeah, I maybe as the guy, uh, his wife was remarrying. <laughs> yeah, you like Charles Shaw? Now everybody yeah. loves Charles Shaw. Oh, and it didn't work out. <laughs> oh, I'm sad. Oh, boy. I'm even more sad than I was. Oh, but he's cheap. Oh, that's why people <laughs> like him. But two Chuck, two, two buck, Chuck Buck, two Chuck Buck, two Buck Chuck is now actually two ninety nine. It's mm. three Darrell Charles. Got it. I had a blank space for a right pun here and I never did. <laughs> it's okay. That's just put Daniel will take it from here. <laughs> Daniel will spend an entire yeah. uh, night trying to perfectly craft this. <laughs> no, I got it. Three Darl Charles. No, take another swing at it. Um, <laughs> around this time, early 2000s, John Shields retired from Trader Joe's and Dan Bain was put in the place, which is a funny name for somebody who works at it like a Trader Joe's, but whatever. With Bain at the helm, 
Trader Joe's would go about eliminating uh, GMOs from their private label food line. So no more GMOs in any of their, no more genetically modified food in any of their. It's all like there's nothing wrong with genetically modified food, Joe. Get over it. Get Joe. over it. Read the science, Joe. People like it. I love big tomatoes, and I cannot <laughs> lie. I love genetically modified butts, and I cannot lie. The company continued to expand and open new locations all over the country. Some stores even being quite large, which is impossible to think about an adequately adequately sized Trader Joe. Some of them are cut, like the one. In North Hollywood, I think is that might be the was that the one that you were trying to read the Will Smith story at? No, the Glendale one, oh. which is one of the ones that I'm like, is it is it getting smaller? Yeah, maybe the one in in North Hollywood is just has high ceilings. Maybe it has high ceilings. I know the one you're talking about. I think that one of the Eagle Rock one, I was kind of surprised, but like they have a free like a standing freezer section. <laughs> the ones that I've been to, it feels like are the walls cur- currently closing you know, in on me? I would like to see a, a Trader Joe's without the shelves in it because I bet it's like a Halloween maze where you're yeah. like, I was in there for 15 minutes and then like all the other times of the year, like that was just their driveway. Like I want to see what it's, it's probably like the size of my apartment. Yeah, it's <laughs> probably the size of the room that we're in right now. <laughs> probably. Yeah. The company itself moved its headquarters to Monrovia and they have continued expanding their items and store locations. Their 400th store opened in Austin in 2013 with more than 500 stores across the country. Trader Joe's has helped push exotic and interesting foods into the general population of shoppers. And still, 2022, some people have still, it's still their first time ever going to a trade. There's some people who have never gone to a trade. Uh, those poor souls. They must be too rich. They're too educated or uneducated. And as of 2022, Trader Joe's sales are up in the billions. And this is from a supermarket that does not aggressively advertise and acts like it's a humble little mom and pop supermarket. It's like in and out yeah. the in and out effect. We're like, I guess in and out does some commercials, but it's like, you know who we are. Yeah, yeah, you, you get it. They also don't have coupons or no. like a rewards membership or anything like that, which is kind of frustrating. But at the same time, it's like probably how they keep their prices yeah. the way they are. It's affordable enough. And they have such a like a folksy thing about both of them in yeah. and out too. Oh, also, has, shucks, yeah. we can't give you a discount. What if you we say only it? made a billion dollars this year. What if you act real nice and whisper, <laughs> we'll put mayonnaise where we don't usually put mayonnaise <laughs> we'll tell you where we found sir strawberry <laughs> your long lost love um i, I mean I every killed her 30 years ago and bared her <laughs> everything at trader joe's is about three or four dollars yeah yeah that's kind of the the standard price of stuff yeah until so you want to buy like tea tree oil and you're like ten dollars well yeah i mean oil. i don't go to trader joe's for my tea tree oil oh my i've God. got a guy i'll tell you where i get my yeah tea i'll tell you where you go it's a tree but <laughs> Let me bring your own tea, though. Um, yeah, like any of like JoJo's, I want to say, are yeah. like three dollars. Like their tortilla chips are mm-hmm. like two, three dollars. Like everything is kind of three or four dollars. Yeah, within a range of each other. It, it, it's it's pretty nice. And like like I was in the close up right now. That brand identity, along with unique choices for locations, fun, interesting products that cater to the exact demographic, overall friendly staff, and low prices, it makes shopping at Trader Joe's more than a choice of where you're getting groceries. It's like a character trait. Like my personality is I Trader shop at Joe. Trader Joe's. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Joe Colomb died at the beginning of 2020 before the world went into COVID timeline. So he didn't die from, as far as we know, didn't die I think he was patient zero, but that's just my theory. That's just what I think. I think that they created Joe Colomb in a lab <laughs> at Stanford. No, he bit a bat or something. <laughs> yeah, he he did a really racist thing. Ozzy Osbourne impression. His <laughs> favorite band is Black Sabbath. Uh, and Fred Franzia, the owner of the company that puts out Two Buck Chuck, died this September of oh this God. year. But their legacy of wine and cheese party food for the beer and chips crowd is still held in this place. 
Wow. 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 Trader Joe's and the other place I'm about to talk about is, uh, those are my two places that oh, I yeah? get like all, pretty much all my groceries. Okay. Viarta, cool. like specialty things, yeah. like uh, there's hot sauces and things I can only get at Viarta. Right. But You're not a Super A guy? Okay. What's Super A? Super A market. There's something in my side of town. I have never heard of a Super oh, A before. Well. Hey, have you heard of a, uh, I'm trying to think of what's only, a uh, grocery outlet bargain market? Have you heard of a 7-Eleven with a bunch of teenagers in it? <laughs> then you haven't shopped before. Yeah, and you've never gone grocery <laughs> shopping until you've gone grocery shopping at a liquor store. <laughs> so look, let's take a let's take a quick break. We got a few uh, things we want to tell you about, and then we'll get back. So we're going back in line for more groceries. I'm you, still hungry. You forgot something important that your mom told you to buy. I know you're at you're putting the stuff. Your wife. Yeah. Or, <laughs> or your girlfriend. Maybe they're the same person, or you see them as such. Maybe you call your girlfriend mom sometimes, and it's kind of weird. So uh, we'll take a break. We'll be right back. Settle in for an evening of mystery, mayhem, and exploration of the dark side of humanity. I'm Dr. Shiloh, a former cop. And I'm Dr. Scott, a former Hollywood casting director. Now we're both forensic psychologists working in Southern California. Are you fascinated by the twisted minds that commit criminal acts? Do you ever wonder, how could they do that? In each episode of our podcast, LA Not So Confidential, we dissect the nexus where true crime, forensic psychology, and entertainment meet. Katie Blanchard was exaggerating her daughter's medical condition for financial gain. We serve up fascinating cases viewed through the lens of human behavior. Brother, why is your brother afraid of you? Delivered with our signature gallows humor while examining the actual diagnoses and dishing on the media portrayal. The kids are my life. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential anywhere you go for podcasts. Come and join us for LA Not So Confidential. Trust us, we're doctors. Ghost of a 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 ghost. I thought one of us was going to say the words and one of us would keep doing that. I think that we should have said that before. We should have probably thought about it a little more. Well, it's too late now because we don't edit this show. Halloween decorations are coming down soon. Christmas decorations are coming up. But as doesn't make a place less haunted. Daniel? And how... Did Spiro Agnew feel about that? <laughs> As someone who doesn't celebrate Christmas, but enjoys the festivities of Christmas lights, Christmas trees, porridge, um, thicky pudding. And now for the Jewish perspective on Christmas, uh, Spiro Agnew. Your hair is everywhere. There's ghosts still! There's ghosts are still here! Like you said, it may not be as spooky. When you listen to this, it's a day after spooky. Mm-hmm. But we still have our spooky, haunted, creepy Christmas, haunted Hanukkah episode coming out in December. So this month, this is your deadline. In the next three weeks, we need you to send us your LA ghost stories. Any ghost story that happened to you in Los Angeles County, type it up, send it to us, and we will read it in our creepy Christmas haunted Hanukkah episode. Dramatically, we will read it very dramatically. You set the tone for how dramatic you want it read, and we will match it. Yeah, put like a character list and cast who you would want it to be. Like, this should be a Spiro Agnew type. (laughs) If you could do your Richard Nixon voice for this one, it would really help the story. Because the ghost was in Richard Nixon's house in Whittier. (laughs) (laughs) I am not a ghost. I'm more of a poltergeist. Um, <laughs> so yeah, send us your LA ghost stories. You can email it to us, la.meekly at gmail.com, at la underscore meekly on Instagram, at la meekly on Twitter, or on our website, lameeklypodcast.com. You could send it to us and we will read it. We swear to God, yep. we will read it. And don't sleep on this. Don't be like, oh, three, oh, just I'll mm-hmm. send it in on Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Do it as mm-hmm. soon as you mm-hmm. can. So send those ghost stories to us. And now back to the show. Mm-hmm. 
And we're back to our supermarket sweep bonanza. If you listen to this in a grocery store and shove as many things into your cart as you can, walk out with them for free. You have an hour and a half. And the Lord podcast will pay for it. Yeah, just on your way out, say, put on Aaron Menke's <laughs> credit card. So we've got one more grocery store for yes, you. This do. one is, this is my home base yeah. for all things edible. <laughs> The walls are edible. The shelves are edible. <laughs> you can even eat the dishes. <laughs> so this place, nothing gets my yum-yums going like heading down to the appetizingly named Ralph. 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 I am Ralph. What are you looking forward to today? <laughs> this is where I do 85% of my grocery shopping at Ralph's, 15% at Trader 14% at Trader Joe's, 1% other. Yeah, other, which is just gas stations and <laughs> yeah, stuff. It's, yeah. it's shell gas stations. What I find in the, the storm drains. <laughs> do you shop at Ralph's? Or you yeah, a Ralph's I'm a Ralph's. I mean, I... I have a, two Ralphs pretty close to me. I'm I'm more of a Vons guy myself. I don't like Vons. I found to be more expensive. It's a little more expensive. I mean, like it's no Albertsons. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> uh, but which it, are now like all the same company? Yeah, they be yeah. like as I was doing this research, I was like, I gotta add more stuff to this. I'm I'm fine with the Ralphs. I like Ralph. I, like I always grew up going to Ralphs. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really depends like what's closest to you. Yeah, but and like I liked Ralphs, and it's also there's like multiple Ralphs close to me. Yeah, so they're all fighting for you to be the closest to you. So I want to. Oh, I want to be closest to him. So this most sacred of sites all began in Joplin, Missouri. Oh boy! On September twenty third, eighteen fifty. Yeehaw! <laughs> Um, bang, 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 bang. <laughs> uh, did, uh, that's Scott Joplin. I don't think he's from Joplin, Missouri. Did they rename themselves after him? I hope so. I hope so. This guy's really good. This guy's really good and black. That's that's This the, white guy's really good. Oh, what? Yeah. I should probably look at him. I didn't realize that it was a thing of like people didn't know Scott Joplin was black. Of, co- of course not. <laughs> I mean, not until MTV came out did people yeah, realize that Scott, Scott Joplin, Joplin was black. Yeah. <laughs> when when he came out and did the moonwalk, they're like, this guy's, this guy, the entertainer's black? Uh, anyway, the, the racist country. So this was September 23rd, 1850, Joplin, Missouri. A little boy was born named George Albert Ralphs. That's right. It wasn't a guy named Ralph and his name is possessive. His last name was literally Ralphs. Wow. Okay. His name was is plural S. Ralphs. No apostrophe in his last wow. name. That's why there's no apostrophe in the, the store name. Okay. It's just George Ralph's. That's his name. George Albertson's Ralph. Yeah. Well, he's Von Ralph. He's Von Ralph. He's, Ger- he's a German <laughs> as way of Missouri. His name is Erewhon Albertson's Von Ralph's. <laughs> Von's Ralph's. Sorry. So as with both my founders today, he was a poor boy from a poor family. <laughs> On top of that, his family was Mormon. Oh, okay. That meant that in 1851, when he was but a babe, his family was called upon by Brigham Young to trek out west to colonize a Mormon outpost in Southern California that would be sort of a jumping off point from San Pedro on their way out to Salt Lake City. So this was, his family was on a colonizing mission from from Brigham Young, and this outpost was to be in the very Mormon San Bernardino. Like San Bernardino was founded by Mormon people. I don't know, founded, but it was a a Mormon outpost. They hung out there a lot, yeah. They, they, you know, it had more room for your wives. Uh, so his family and son- all the dirt they can eat. 
So his family and several others set out from Missouri on oxen-drawn wagons, Oregon Trail style, to traverse what was still the Wild West to come to Southern California, and it was a disaster. <laughs> they didn't have enough water, and they were drinking boiled horse urine to survive. You gotta boil it. That's when it tastes good. So that also explains why they sell boiled horse urine at Ralph's. <laughs> now you know. It's like um, a fountain drink. They yeah. like a... <laughs> you want Mr. Pib or boiled horse urine? <laughs> <laughs> Ugh, give me the boiled horse urine. This is, uh, that's just a Simpsons joke. Uh, it works every time. Though. <laughs> I laugh every single time that joke comes out. So in Colorado, their caravan was attacked by a local tribe and half of the caravan that went out to fight them never returned. But the Ralphs half survived and after 18 months, they arrived in the place that made that perilous journey all worth it. Donner Lake. <laughs> I came here to do two things. Eat my family and drink boiled horse urine. And I'm all out of... A lot of family members. <laughs> so they made it all the way to San Bernardino. When they settled in there, George's dad opened up San Bernardino's first brick factory <laughs> and George himself... A brick factory? They just made them. In a factory. What do you think? The CEO was Crazy Cat. I mean, where do you think? You know, it's, it's you either make bricks in a factory or in a Egyptian slave camp. I wouldn't call those bricks. <laughs> oh yeah, the pyramid's just a bunch of bricks. It's a like ninety of- bricks. <laughs> uh, okay, they're alien bricks. Uh, I know how you feel. I know where you stand. Slavery doesn't exist, but aliens do. What what planet are these aliens from? Egypt, <laughs> Israel, Israel. George himself became so good at bricklaying, he got in the family business that he won the title of champion bricklayer of California. George Ralphs. Uh, what a what a scam competition is like. Uh, whoever builds me this brick house, a brick. House? House? Mighty, mighty, mighty. mighty. The mighty, (laughs) mighty bricklayer. So things were going as Mormonly as they could, and the family did a lot of business with L.A., who was needing more and more bricks as Los Angeles grew. As more things burned down from being made of wood. Made of wood. We decided in Earthquake Town to build places made of brick. Well, the Big Bad Wolf came and (laughs) burned our wood houses down, but then the Big Bad Earthquake came and knocked down our brick houses. If it was only like a natural disaster to turn this structure into break it down by units and then throw <laughs> like bullets at us. But George was also a lover of hunting. Hmm. He would regularly go out to the San Fernando Valley when it was still uh, just the big hunting grounds where he would hunt. Well, it still kind of is, am I right? <laughs> Getting been, girls, am I right? Okay. <laughs> Cruising down Bay Nights. Uh, that's where I go hunting. He would hunt and sell dove, quail, rabbits, and ducks for okay. extra money. You can sell by all of those. It's in the boiled urine section. <laughs> Of Ralph's. <laughs> and in Ralph's, they have like the Ralph's old collection. Yeah. And it's boiled it's, horse urine. There's a big. Hunted quail. <laughs> there's a big like uh, faux wagon with like wagon <laughs> wheels in one section. Like, oh, wow. Where does it? Hum a little. <laughs> they have like a two gun, like a. Two shot. Two shot. Bach. That's a. I got it. You know it. You I, know. I know what you're doing. Greg, you feel me. Unfortunately, I feel you. <laughs> uh, please sit further away from hey, We me. have a telepathic link that I'm continually trying to break. <laughs> I know. It's like cat dog, but when I make a bad joke, you get heartburn. <laughs> uh, so on one of these trips, these hunting trips into the valley in 1872, which, by the way, th- like this yeah. is... Oh, I know. Like Civil War times. Like this was a long time ago. Like... Abraham Lincoln is still fresh in his grave. Yeah. His family's still trying to get a refund for the ticket to the show. <laughs> his hat's still smoking. 
And Ralph is like, I, I got a crazy idea. I want to go hunting. Uh, so 1872. <laughs> His hunting partner was John Wilkes Booth. The actor? Back to the Future was a remake from an original story in 18... Which was a play. 1885. Yeah, a play in 1885. 1882. He goes hunting in the San Fernando Valley. He was resting his left arm on his shotgun barrel when their wagon hit a hole that set his gun off that injured his arm. Now, at first I read his arm was injured. That's what I read. Then another thing said it shattered his whole left arm. Then another thing said it took off part of his arm. Then another thing was like it ripped his whole arm off at the elbow. So I don't know what happened. Whatever happened, George Ralphs did not have a left arm anymore. Okay. So he could no longer, little Mr. Bricklayer suddenly cannot lay bricks as well as he used to. He has one arm now. Jack Pierce can't play baseball anymore. (laughs) Exactly. So he had to make a change of career. So he decided to get a job in a grocery store in downtown Los Angeles in 1873 at Fifth and Hill, right off of Pershing Square. But I also read that it was Fifth and Spring, but more people said it was Fifth and Hill. But Okay, right. um, and Nearby. They wanted a park for all the businesses that were nearby to be facing them. (laughs) We know that much about Pershing Square. So he worked And then the boys started coming and hanging around. Wherever I want to work, I have to work near Pershing Square. <laughs> I have to near, work near the run. Why do you call that? You'll, oh, you'll see. You'll see. Boys love a man with one arm. <laughs> so he worked for a man named S.A. Francis, who took him under his wing, which is maybe a Maybe that's not the right term to use for someone who just lost his arm, but he took <laughs> he it, took him under an uh, arm. <laughs> so S.A. Francis took him under his wing and not long after, the two pooled their money to open up a second location of this little grocery store at the southwest corner of 6th and Spring. This second location was called Ralph's and Francis. Okay. But by 1875, Ralph's had bought Francis out of the picture for a mere $2,000, which was massive back then, I guess, and brought in his brother, Walter. Okay. So it was George and Walter Ralph were now running a store and they renamed it Ralph's Bros Grocers. Renamed it Francis's. Oh no, we picked the wrong oh, name. No. <laughs> now we it's too expensive to change the sign. <laughs> so this location at it's like when you give like a piece of paper for them to write on a cake and yeah. you spelled things wrong. It's too late now. Too late now. Uh, so this location at Sixth and Spring was built specifically for them. It was two stories and was seven thousand three hundred square feet. Not huge by modern supermarket standards. It sounds like a little bigger than a Trader Joe's, right? But kind of big for a little grocery store. But mm-hmm. they even in eighteen seventy. I bet it was pretty like, this is a nice place. (laughs) Like, oh, is the president shop here? He's dead. And the president president shop's here too. (laughs) God rest his soul. God rest Michael's furniture. (laughs) But they had an advantage in these early days over other grocery stores. Farmers would come every day or every week into the city from the outskirts and beyond to peddle their crop. And this was, oh, I meant crap. Uh, And this was an expensive endeavor for them. You know, you have to, you have to come to make money, but in the process, you have to feed yourself. You have to find a place to stay while you were here. You have to pay for horse gas. Yeah. Um, You have to boil your horse urine. So George and his brother came up with the idea to provide lodging and stable for these farmers coming into town for free in exchange for a discount on your produce, which these guys could afford because they were saving money on lodging and stables. So like, okay, you know what? I'm saving money. You're making this easier for, we make it easy Mm -hmm. on you. So 
okay, we'll do it. This allowed the Ralphses to keep their prices down for customers, which in turn brought in a lot of business. Right. And it also made them popular with the farmers who would often just sell their entire crop to the Ralph store because they liked them and it was easier, which why bought like these guys want to buy it all. They're giving me housing. You know what? One stop and I can go back to the farm. Yeah. I can go live that sweet farm life, uh, which also buying in bulk would give them an even bigger discount, which translated to even lower prices for the customer, which right. meant more people wanted to shop there. So a smart business model. Shrewd, Greg. Shrewd. So Ralph's was winning on every single level here. They became known for having low prices and quality produce. Okay. Their slogan became Ralph's sells for less. And the president shops here too. (laughs) And George's guiding principle was if we don't want... I started reading this and we were thinking of other uh, catchphrases. I almost started saying, if it doesn't get all over the place, it doesn't belong in your face. (laughs) His slogan was, if we don't want it on our tables, we don't want it in our stores. In our stables. Okay. (laughs) Oh, they didn't care about rhymes back then? He got addicted to boiled horse urine. (laughs) Just one more class. You're ruining his family. George, you've had enough. (laughs) I'll tell you when I've had enough. Now bring Mr. Ed in here. So in the 1890s, they also started doing free home delivery on horse-drawn wagons, which I I wish they would bring back. Yeah. (laughs) And free drinks. Stop giving the horse water. (laughs) Free drinks. Yeah, it's right at the spigot. So uh, where's the free drinks? (laughs) Buddy, you're looking at it. (laughs) By the new century, their success had outgrown their old building. So in 1901, they had a big brand new store built at 514 South Spring Street. And they also started carrying things like kitchen utensils and alarm clocks. And in 1909, they officially changed their name to Ralph's Grocery Company. Okay. Then they opened up a second location. Wow, that were letters free back then? (laughs) Yeah, Ralph's Groco. <laughs> then they opened up a second location at Pico and Normandy, a little outside of downtown, okay. and then another one at Pasadena and Avenue 26 in Lincoln Heights, also a little outside of downtown, and then one at Vermont and 35th near USC, also kind of outside of downtown. Right. So they were expanding out of downtown as the city itself was doing so. And interesting locations too, like the one by USC must have obviously, you know, oh, there's a lot of people around here and they're all young and they need groceries. We'll get to something similar about that. They're overeducated. They need groceries. <laughs> so Joe where, ain't trading yet. He's just selling. Wherever the sprawl was reaching, Ralph's was following. Okay. So it grew with, so interesting. with the city, which was actually a risky move because back then opening up secondary locations of a business was seen as a bad thing because it was like, oh, they're going to draw business away from your main location. Yeah, you're splitting your, your stock. Yes. So Ralph's proved them wrong and helped usher in the modern age of multiple locations being seen not as a bad thing, but just reinforcing the brand of Ralph's. Right. And this whole time it was being run by George Ralph's and his brother Walter and then his other brother Oscar who bought out Walter in the 1890s and Oscar went on to be the guy who was pretty much responsible for creating the town of Gorman. Oh really? Oscar Ralph's. Garlic Town? No, that's Gilroy. Oh you're right. Gorman you're right, you're right. is Dirt Bike Town. Dirt Bike Town. Yeah. Oh, Dirt well, Bike, Dirt there. Bag. You got a dirt bike? Sorry, you're a dirt bag. <laughs> Welcome to Gorman. Welcome to the metal militia. Whatever that is. <laughs> but George had an even worse fate than living in Gorman, if you can imagine it. As we remember, George already had a tough life. Drinking boiled horse urine as a yeah. baby, getting a taste for it that he just couldn't shake, almost being killed on the way cross country as a baby, lost his arm. But he built something big despite of all this. And of course, that meant... He was an alcoholic. Of course. <laughs> he. I mean, sure, any guy can have a horse urine problem, but he <laughs> had an alcoholic horse urine problem. That was I a, need to boil all my coarse lights. That was until he met his beloved wife, 
Walula von Keith. Oh, yeah, that's a name. In 1897, beloved Walula straightened him out, and in May 1913, the two built a giant house at 7269 Hollywood Boulevard on a patch of land they bought from LA's second mayor, George Dunlap, for $35,000. This house had 16 bedrooms, three bathrooms, which feels like way too few bathrooms for 16 bedrooms. Yeah. They have that many outhouses? <laughs> well, two of them were for horses, nah. <laughs> and they, they didn't have plumbing in there. So, uh, That's the milking room. <laughs> three bathrooms, 12 milking rooms. <laughs> so a tennis court, Whoa. a pool, orange groves. We actually filmed that old Haunted Hollywood Boulevard video in front of where this house used to be. Really? Because it was rumored to be cursed. That's why they called it the Jinx Mansion. It was one of the places we visited. On June 21st, 1914, George took his family for a weekend trip near Lake Arrowhead, and Mm -hmm. they went on a hike in Waterman's Canyon, which I bet he thought it was a different... He (laughs) he wished it was a different liquid. Um, He decided to... A whole canyon of it? (laughs) Golly. You're telling me that there's a whole canyon (laughs) of horse urine and Scott Joplin's wine? He decided to... It's a tough weekend. He decided to run ahead of his family on this hike. Right. Because they were too slow and he sat on a giant boulder to wait for them to catch up. He, when he, he's sitting on this boulder waiting for them and he sees his wife coming. So he scoots over to let her sit on the rock. And when he did so, oh, no. he dislodged the boulder, which went rolling down a hill, dragging him with it. And what happened again was another thing where I saw each story sort of built on the last one. One said that the boulder crushed his leg. Another said it ripped it out of its socket. So the new slogan of Ralph should be, this place costs our founder an arm and a leg, but not you, (laughs) Uh, which is very inappropriate. Um, Anyway, so George was still alive and he was rushed to the hospital where the doctors tried to give him ether, but he said, whatever you do, don't give me any ether. They cut off my arm without ether. You can cut off my leg the same way. I don't know if this was like a recovering addict thing or that his wife was a Christian scientist, I think, but as he was having this argument with his doctor, his leg just fell off. He slipped out of consciousness and died. Oh my God. George Ralphs died due to Boulder. They arrested the Boulder that night, <laughs> hung it. They, yeah, they hung it, and it 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 ended up crushing all of them. <laughs> the, the Boulder is actually that big rock they have at LACMA. It's like how they would have like a head on a pike for yeah, other yeah, boulders. Yeah, yeah. Don't try taking our supermarket yeah. founders. So that's Come where for for Von Vons next time. <laughs> so that's where the curse of the Jinx Mansion started, and wow. things have happened to other people who live there. But that's another episode. Okay. Not not today. So now the founder of Ralph's was dead, George Ralph's. All the stores were closed the day of his funeral, and he's buried at Evergreen Cemetery. Oh, welcome. After this, control of the company went to his son, Albert, and George's brother's sons, Walter Jr. and Elmer. Then in the late 40s, the next generation took over in the form of Albert Jr., Walter Jr., Jr., and Richard. (laughs) A law firm? (laughs) Albert Jr., Walter Jr., Jr., (laughs) and Elmer. He's the wacky lawyer. He's kind of silly. They bring him for word cases. But back in the 1910s, Ralph's was big. Yes, but it was still an old world grocery store. It wasn't yet a supermarket. Right. A couple things they did change this. The first was that in the 1910s, as cars came into LA and suddenly the streets were busy and parking became more and more scarce downtown. And it was that awful mix we had for a while of cars, trolleys, and horses all in the same. And like everybody's dying. Yeah. Somehow the horse survives. Well, he's got to got to provide liquid but there needed to be a better way to do your grocery shopping through all this like you it was no longer feasible to drive your car which you now had yeah. from store to store to store every day to get what you needed around downtown LA. It was yeah. like a miserable situation. So this led to the rise of the drive-in grocery store, which were basically just stops attached to gas stations that you could run in and grab your stuff. 
which sounds kind of like an AMPM today, but more like if there were like a tiny Ralph's attached to a gas station. Yeah, I, I, I've done a little of those in my life. There wasn't in one in Echo Park. Oh, really? The drive up. I, oh, yeah. I forgot you're from the 1910s. <laughs> I forgot you look so good for your age. <laughs> um, the only time I hear that is in context of how old I'm supposed to be. <laughs> you look good for somebody who should be dead. You look good for someone who's 400. So it was like a Ralph's attached to a gas station, only it wasn't a Ralph's. It was just a random place that sold produce and things like that attached to a gas station, which to many middle and upper class people felt gross. Right. Like even today, like I wouldn't want to do my grocery shopping and I am... Pff, let's just say upper class, it, it feels not right to do yeah. your grocery shopping at a 7-Eleven or an AMPM or something. Right. Like, would you go to buy a gallon of milk at a 7-Eleven unless it was like a serious got milk situation? I mean, I, I've done it before and I don't feel good about it. For me, mostly it's because it's usually more expensive. Yeah. And there's usually like a Ralph's or a supermarket just as close, mm-hmm. but it's it feels wrong to do your grocery shopping there. Yeah, it does. It feels like everything's going to taste weird. <laughs> that was sort of the consensus even back then. So these drive-ins, while convenient, they were not elegant. So the advantage Ralph's had there was that they were so big that they carried everything you needed. Right. You didn't have to go to four different stores. They had your produce, they had your meat, they had your bread, they had your utensils and such. You could get everything you needed for the week in one place and that was that. So okay. that was an advantage. Advantage? Ralph's. They weren't necessarily the first in the city to do this as far as I can tell, but they were doing it, which was a huge step up. What they did have was parking and oh, that was huge. Yeah. They made sure all their stores they opened up in the age of cars, which by 1928, they now had 17 locations. They had ample parking. They made sure of that. And they still do. Ralph's always has a lot of parking, unlike Trader Joe's. The final piece of the puzzle that delineates the old world grocery days of Ralph's to supermarket Ralph's, supermarket Ralph's, was in 1928 when they switched over to self-service, which is a concept that used to be and still kind of is so foreign to me of like, that's just service. Yeah. Like what is not self-service? So instead of going in, like you used to go in, you'd had a list of things and you'd hand to the employee and they would go to each department for you and get it for you. You were now free to roam the store and you picked out what you wanted. Oh boy. <laughs> what a mistake that was. <laughs> I'm like a kid in a grocery shop. <laughs> I'm like a kid in a grocery shop that sells candy. <laughs> but being able to pick your own items was a huge new trend in shopping that revolutionized grocery shopping and eventually retail in general. Like that's how things used to work. You would say like, I'm looking for a shirt. And then they would, rather than you saying like, I kind of like that shirt, like they would choose what shirts you wanted and bring them to you. You're too tall for that. This one's yours. So that was the new trend in stores. You do it yourself. Again, Ralph's was not the first to do this, but they were the biggest to do it in town. The interior of their stores were redesigned to kind of let you meander and go wherever you want instead of like a rigid section by section line. It made things feel more egalitarian and provided the middle class with a comfortable and convenient and clean feeling alternative to the drive-in grocery stores. Like, I don't want Gomer coming up and like, you you look for eggs? I dropped the milk. I had a little bit this morning, but it's still good. (laughs) So in doing so, this created the model for the modern supermarket, all of these changes in Ralph's. And they only made the experience easier and more self-contained as the years went on. In 1926, there was a bread trust monopoly brewing in town that was doubling the prices of bread. So to keep their costs down, they had their own bakery to provide their own bread for the stores. Today, this bakery is in Glendale. That's where they bake all the Ralph's bread. Oh, really? They were unhappy with the milk prices. So they challenged the milk pricing system in California that went all the way to the Supreme Court. Oh I don't know if the California Supreme Court or the Supreme, Supreme Court or the Supreme infallible Court. 
woman-loving Supreme Court of today, <laughs> they lost the case. So to keep their milk prices down, they opened up their own creamery in 1932. Okay. As the 30s went on, even though their original location closed in 1937, Ralph's grew to 25 locations out of some 400 grocery stores total in LA. Jesus. So 25 of them were Ralph's. Ralph's was one of the biggest and they stayed on top because they had the money to advertise and to buy in bulk. Their architecture was also a big part of their success. They became known for having buildings that were very conducive and functional for supermarket shopping, but also looked really nice. They had big windows that brought in natural lighting. They had wide aisles. They wanted the outsides to look dramatic and more like the old department stores around downtown LA at the time. Okay. The Westwood location, not the one that's there now, but this one was built in 1929 as their biggest location. At It was Westwood and Limbrook, right next to 800 Degrees, like okay. across the street from the Hammer Museum. The building's still there, but the entrance, it's now an Alfred Coffee. But this building opened two months after classes started at UCLA. LA wow. and was one of the first six buildings in Westwood. Jeez. Its opening was called one of the most auspicious occasions ever witnessed in the community, <laughs> which also feels very grand. Yeah. It was photographed by Ansel Adams in <laughs> 1940. The Half Dome, Yosemite Valley, Westwood Ralphs. <laughs> One of the greatest natural wonders. <laughs> How has God done it again? <laughs> and in 1992, this Ralph's building was added to the National Register of Historic Places. Wow, really? It's, it's kind of crazy. The rest of the 20th century brought tons of advancements for Ralph's. They opened up deli counters in the 40s. 1949, they had their own frozen food warehouse. They opened their own frozen food warehouse. By the 50s, they had grown to over 100 locations. And in 1953, opened a distribution warehouse, their own produce warehouse, and a deli kitchen in 1959. Mm. In 1961, they opened their own meat distribution center, which was one of the early places to have prepackaged meat rather than just like hanging, sla like Rocky style slabs of meat. Yeah. It was attracting boxers. <laughs> Italian boxers. <laughs> Shoe. Shoe, get out of here. <laughs> um, this allowed them to start selling family sized value packages of meat. Uh, in 1968, they were one of the first markets to allow voluntary fish inspections by the Department of the Interior. In 1970, they became one of the first places to start putting price per measure in for on their tags oh, wow. of like, this is like 20 cents per ounce. Right. And they also do have expiration dates on their milk. In 1972, they became one of the first places to have their own floral department in store. Oh, cute. 1974, they became one of the first supermarkets to offer their own generic brand of products known as Plain Wrap brand, uh, which is my favorite style of wrapping. <laughs> that same year, they opened their first store outside of LA in Sacramento, 1974. By 1977, they were totally self-supplying. And by 19 their stores were using laser price scanners to check you out, Whoa. one of the first to do so. Yeah. For all of these reasons, the proliferation of Ralph's supermarkets helped facilitate the sprawl and suburbanization of LA. Mm -hmm. Like with a Ralph's nearby, like in Westwood, for example, you could live far from the old traditional core of downtown LA and still have easy access to literally what you needed to survive, which right. was food. If a Ralph's was built in a new neighborhood, that automatically made property more desirable and valuable and Ralph's would draw other businesses because they saw like, oh, people People are actually going to be living here and shopping here, right. so I can open my my bra store here. Yeah, I was about to say lingerie store for some reason too. I don't know why. <laughs> well, we have a big picture of Farrah Fawcett on the wall, <laughs> as we do when we record. It's it's it helps us. <laughs> it's conducive. Clearly, yeah. So the Hollywood Daily Citizen described the role of a Ralph's linking the country to the city as like a marketplace of Rome, which also sounds grand, but also yeah. not wrong. Yeah. Like if you, if you lived in the valley or something, you know, you have food now. <laughs> it, it's funny because you know we talked about the way sprawl initially happened 
was, well, I don't know if it's sprawl, but like somebody would buy a ranch, build uh, train tracks connecting it to the city. I'm like, yeah. well, I know that this takes you out, but like you would need something like- How a- are you going to survive? I can only drink so much boiled horse yeah. urine. <laughs> and like, I love it, but like, I know like it tastes good. It's probably not good for me. But like, <laughs> it seems like after a town was bought, they would just stick a Ralph's there and be like, look how legitimate we are. Yeah. You could survive without having to be in the city. <laughs> the term supermarket originated in Southern California. And a big part of that was because of a place like Ralph's. Like, I don't know if it's a trip directly to Ralph's, but just like Ralph's Vaughn's, which is also an LA thing mm. and like a few other things, they were supermarkets. Right. Uh, their model and style also spread to the East Coast when A&P stores, which is another thing I only know from Looney Tunes, started failing. Their model was failing. So they started becoming more like Ralph's to stay afloat wow. and it worked. But the days of being a family run business couldn't last with a Ralph this size. In 1968, the Cincinnati based Federated Department Stores bought them for $60 million. Jeez. And in 1973, the Ralph's bloodline stopped running the place for good when Richard Ralph's, who was George Ralph's grandson, son retired. In 1976, a guy named Byron Allenbaugh, who had been working in grocery stores since he was 12, took over as CEO with the goal of taking Ralph's National, which as it turned out, was a bad idea. Mm -hmm. The 80s saw more and more supermarket chains popping up, so the competition became fierce. And in 1988, there was an attempted hostile buyout of Ralph's, which I don't understand, but it forced them to put a lot of their stores up for sale. And much like my telling of this, the story of Ralph's looked like it was coming to a close. But much like my telling of this, it wasn't. In the 90s, Ralph's was losing a ton of money. So Alumbaugh tightened things up and downsized heavily by closing several stores, but it did save the chain. Like Ralph's was almost gone. They stabilized by the mid 90s and were approached by Northern California's Food for Less Uh to start a partnership. So the two stores merged into one company. So Food for Less and Ralph's are the same thing. This allowed them to start expanding again in the late 90s with 1996 alone seeing 27 new stores open up. They expanded so quickly that in 1997, they were slapped with an antitrust lawsuit that legally forbade them from opening any new stores until 2003. Wow. So there was no expansion until 2003. But that didn't matter to Fred Meyer Inc., who bought the company in 1998 and then quickly merged with Kroger, which is where things stand today. Oh, wow. Okay. So Kroger, which is now buying Albertsons as as of this recording. So it's all just one giant company owns all of our food, which sounds like a good idea. I mean, one company owns all our media services, so why not <laughs> That's true. food too? Well, well, uh, hang on. Breaking news. Kroger was just bought by HBO Max. Kroger just bought Disney. <laughs> Breaking news. I can eat Daffy Duck. <laughs> Daffy <laughs> Duck Lorange. So in, in 2000, they started making some of their locations Ralph's Fresh Fare, which offered more gourmet things alongside right. their regular stuff like horse urine. I got two different- All natural. I got two different numbers for how many Ralph's locations there currently are. One thing said there were almost 450 across California, which doesn't sound right, but another said there were 189 in California and mm. one in Kentucky, which sounds more right and weirdly precise to be a lie. Yeah. What is for sure is that they are the largest subsidiary of Kroger, the biggest food retailer in Southern California and the oldest grocery chain west of the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. They also have the Ralph's Food for Less Foundation that gives away tons of money and groceries to charity but most importantly, Ralph's was in the Big Lebowski. <laughs> yeah, brother. That's his only form of identification <laughs> is his Ralph's card. Yeah, so that's Ralph's, my wow. favorite grocery store. I, I, I see why. It's, it's old-timey. It's shockingly old. Yeah. Like 1800s old. Yeah, I, I kind of thought you were joking when you brought that up. But, I would uh, I would kind of wish that they played into that more. Yeah. Like, welcome to old, ye old Ralph. My favorite supermarket <laughs> growing up 
was Pioneer Market, which I've talked about a lot, which was the like an Echo Park Western themed yeah, okay. market. Was it on Gower Gulch? <laughs> it, it looked like a, a remote Gower Gulch <laughs> subsidiary. Of yeah, Gower subsi- Gulch. yeah, subsidiary. Of, but it, that was my favorite because it was all wagons and that. that yeah, I, I like a I like a store with a theme. Yeah, me too. I mean, Ralphs don't really have a theme. Like Viarta has a theme. Yeah, it's Jalisco styled. Mm-hmm. Trader Joe's is tiki and sort of neighborhood. Yeah, focused. Trader Bros. Uh, is uh, like redneck themed. Yeah, the theme is that you're in a bad neighborhood. <laughs> so look, before we before we uh, go, we've got a listener question. All right. This one is from Big Shout Out Chris hey, on Big Instagram. Big Shout Out Chris. Which, that's what big you should shout do. Big Shout Out to Chris. B- built in the shout out you want into your, <laughs> into your handle when you submit these. So his uh, thing, not even a question. All he said is best street slash location slash area for people watching. Hmm. Well, I grew up... My rear window. <laughs> I grew up on a, on the avenue, on Echo Park Avenue, with a porch that was, because, you know, everything's a little hilly there. So yeah. my favorite spot to people watch was from my porch growing up of the <laughs> avenue. But I think if I had to pick one place to do a wide spectrum of people watching, it, like of, of different types of people, it would be somewhere on Melrose Avenue. That's what Melissa said. Yeah. I guess I haven't spent enough time on Melrose Avenue. I mean... I'm highly educated, but not but underpaid, so I don't. But also like punk stores, but also super expensive <laughs> bars, restaurants, and salons. Mine is um, the Ventura Boulevard stretch in Studio City, like Laurel mm. Canyon and Ventura. Yeah, you see a lot of like people and celebrities there. I, that's a pretty good people watching area. Mm-hmm. Also, the Grove is pretty good. I was about to say Farmers Market is it's good. People Farm, watching. Yeah, that whole area. Also, if we're going with a place, I'm going to say expensive grocery stores. Since we're talking oh. about grocery stores, like Erewhon or Bristol Farms. Gal- Gelson's is another one Gelson's. too. Gelson's. You, You'll see a Chloe Seven Yee. Yeah, you, you'll see I, a I guarantee. Yeah. I've seen some famous people at Ralph's. I've seen I, I heard Enos from The Walking Dead. Okay. I've seen Johnny Knox. No, not Johnny Knoxville. Um, Christopher Titus. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. We saw Johnny Knoxville at, at uh, Sammy's Camera, I think. Yeah, yeah. we did. That was. I saw Johnny Knoxville also at the Studio City Farmer's Market and Hayden Christensen. I oh, saw really? at the studio. Uh, I always feel like Knoxville, who I love very dearly, is very dear to, <laughs> near and dear to my heart. I feel like he must have that thing that Houdini has had where he's like, go ahead and punch me. And then they punch him and he <laughs> dies. Your testicles don't seem so strong. And then we just kick him. Yeah, we just attach like, like a car battery charger to his nipples. <laughs> <laughs> When we saw him at Sammy's camera, he was very contemplative. He was thinking about He cameras. was hiding a little, and, a little and, bit. Yeah. And we, I think when he realized like we recognized him as Johnny Knoxville, he like hid behind an aisle. I know. Oh, yeah, that won't save you. I'm coming for you, bro. <laughs> you just made yourself easier to kick in the teeth. <laughs> Going to an era, like it's fun to see. You'll probably see celebrities there, yeah. but also just like to see what rich people look like. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting to yeah. me. Yeah. Rich people, both conservative and liberal, yeah. end up well, in some places where you're like- I don't know if there are liberal rich people. The more I hear about this world, I don't think those exist. Liberal on surface. Right. Of like, <laughs> I, uh, crystals and yoga. and I, well, they Crystals have the, and uh, yoga that I can throw at homeless people to make me stronger yes, to, make to me beat stronger. up homeless people. I won't wear a mask. <laughs> but yeah, that that's uh, that's our Thanksgiving episode. Gobble, gobble, everybody. Gobble, gobble. Uh, enjoy your time at these supermarkets as you're stuck in a miserably long line yep. trying to check out. Wishing that you had done this earlier, but it doesn't make yeah. any sense because food goes bad. You're not even by perishable things. All I'm getting is a thing of little marshmallows. <laughs> but yeah, it, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's yeah, a spicy meatball. It's a spicy meatball. As, as always. It's a spicy meatball. It's a spicy meatball. So uh, yeah, enjoy your holiday, the beginning of the holiday season. Yeah, and we'll see you for I guess a music episode. Maybe, maybe, and uh, live long and prosper.
That's that's the <laughs> message we want to go on. That's it. Uh, so that's been yet another episode of uh, LA Meekly. Drinking boiled horse urine since 2013. You want to go? We're in the valley. You want to go hunt some quail? I know. <laughs> I know where some stables are at. <laughs> it's hot enough outside. They're already halfway to boiling. <laughs> Thank you.